you might recognize from a couple of years ago the name of David Nicosia. Chicago Tribune ran this story. He was a business owner in Chicago. He was outside of the Cook County Courthouse when he became angry at this 79-year-old African-American woman who was smoking. And he felt that she was too close to him. After arguing with her, Nicosia, who is white, spit on the woman. He called her Rosa Parks. And then he allegedly slapped her in the face. Needless to say, that was a bad move. The woman happened to be Judge Annette Hubbard, (laughs) the first female president of the National Bar Association and Cook County Bar Association. Judge Hubbard is a community icon who has served as an election observer in Haiti and South Africa and had long been a voice on civil rights and women's issues in this country. She was appointed to the bench in 1997 and had served until 2010. Needless to say, Nicosia was arrested by sheriff's deputies and charged with four counts of aggravated battery and a hate crime. The Chicago Tribune quoted a local leader who said, People of good common sense and decency, people of good hearts, should be outraged by this. After all, nobody should go slapping and spitting on a community icon. (laughs) No kidding. Or anyone else for that matter. You know what I thought of? I read the story and my mind immediately went to Jesus' arrest and trial. Nobody should go slapping and spitting on a community icon. How about the Son of God? The creator of of the universe. the, The one who holds the breath of life in the palm of his hand. And yet that is exactly what the Gospels tell us happened to Jesus. The soldiers spit on him. They hit him. They mocked him. And in doing, and and in that single event recorded for us in the scripture, I think we have a vivid picture of what humanity has been doing to God since the fall. And what people continue to do to God, they reject him. They spit on him. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1 refers to that is suppressing the truth about God, who, he says, has made himself known through his creation enough so that people are without excuse for their rejection of him. And as a a result of that, Paul writes, the wrath of God is coming on all who have rejected him, and that is bad news. But, and we know this, don't we? Paul also writes about good news. Because that's what That's what our faith is about. Did you know that the word gospel in the Greek means literally good news? And of course, the reason it's good news, as opposed to just being news, is because that wrath and that judgment of God are such bad news. So when people speak about the gospel, they are speaking about literally good news. And when Paul also writes in that first chapter of Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. 
He is speaking about the good news. I'm not ashamed of the good news. He is he's not ashamed because the gospel has nothing to do with him. As humans, we have plenty to be ashamed of. But when it comes to who God is and his character and his work and his plans, there is no shame. I am not ashamed of the good news, says Paul, because it's the power of God that saves people from the condemnation that comes for rejection of him. And I think that's exactly what Jesus had in mind when he said to his followers, go into the world, make disciples. When he said to them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, to the ends of the earth, he knew that, that in his death and in his resurrection, there, there was good news. Actually, there was, there was great news. The righteous requirements that flow out of the character of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, those righteous requirements had been satisfied by God, the Son, giving himself for the sin of those who reject him. I hope you've been reading in Acts 1 through 12. You have, right? Faithfully, practically have it memorized by now. Of course! You know, we are, we are looking at life in Acts 1 to 12, wanting to learn from the history that's there. What came next for those who were followers of Jesus? So that we can better understand the life that Jesus has called us to, to be his witnesses, to, to make disciples. Because a follower of Jesus is a follower of Jesus, no matter the place, no matter the time in history, we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God in us, just as the presence of God indwelled his first followers. And so we want to learn more from, from their experience. And, and hopefully, it begins to shape our experience of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, understanding some of the, the large lessons that we find in Acts. And so we left off two weeks ago, in the middle of chapter 2, at the point where the Holy Spirit had come and indwelled his followers. They were all together, gathered in Jerusalem uh, for the Jewish Feast of Weeks, sometimes also referred to as the Feast of Harvest. Now, isn't that interesting? The Spirit comes and fills the followers of Jesus during the week of the Feast of the Harvest. And somehow I hear in my mind the words of Jesus saying, I will make you fishers of men and women and children. And so in that week of harvest, the Spirit of God comes. You remember Luke's description of it? Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what appeared to be tongues of fire that separated, came to rest on each of them, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. And wouldn't you know it, it just so happened, coincidence of course, that Jews from all over the world had gathered in Jerusalem. There were those who were converts to Judaism, Luke is also careful to point out that there were among them Cretans and Arabs. And all of these folks were hearing the wonders of God declared in their own language. 
And the response was, some people went, wow! And others went, they're drunk. You know, when we consider what it means to be a witness for Jesus, we must always remember that some folks who we are witnesses to will be amazed, maybe even receptive to what we have to say. And there are others who will think that we're nuts. They will make fun of us. They will ridicule us. That's unfortunate. But it's also okay. Because that's what has been happening to the followers of Jesus since Pentecost. And we have to remember as we explore this life of being a witness for Jesus, we have to remember that a person's response to our witness for Jesus is not our responsibility. We don't save them. Good thing. The Holy Spirit does that work. We are witnesses through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and He is the one who tills the soil of a person's heart. And I think it's really important, too, that we, we not forget that there is a bigger picture that is going on there. There's a spiritual battle that is going on for the souls of people. For many, the good news does not sound that good, because they don't see themselves as living in the bad news. Our responsibility is to be us, to be winsome, to be genuine, to be honest about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Some will hear it and some will not. And that is not up to us. And just a reminder of of, of where we're at with this, we've talked about, about being witnesses. And, and I have been a subscriber for years, as I have confessed to you, that, that actions speak louder than words. And I believe that so often that is true. But there comes a point where I need to use my words. There comes a point where we all need to use our words. And, and what we see happening in these chapters of Acts are the followers of Jesus using their words. So our text this morning is in two parts. The first first part that we'll read together comes from Acts 2, and it's Peter's response to those mockers. Ah, They're drunk! And Peter says, no! No, it's, uh, it's early in the day. These folks aren't drunk. Let me explain to you what has happened. And then he goes on to describe that, and, and, and we'll read that. He refers to, to the words of the prophet Joel in the Old Testament, explaining the coming of the Spirit and the speaking of these, these foreign languages by these simple Galileans. And then he offers a challenge to them, and we read their response. And then our second text, a few verses from Acts chapter 3, after Peter and John have gone to the temple one day to pray at one of the appointed times for Jews to pray. And there is a man there who the scriptures tell us has been crippled from birth. 
And, and that was what was common, that, that folks with, with those kinds of disabilities would, would sit and, and receive gifts and, and, and alms, if you will, from the crowd who was on their way to the temple. And so Peter and John, of course, if you remember the story, uh, they don't have any money. Uh, but what they have, they, they offer to this man in the name of Jesus Christ. And we see this man healed. And so our second text is going to be the crowd gathering and, and the response to that. So let's stand and uh, read together. First from Acts 2, and then we'll go to just a, a, a section of Acts 3. Here we go. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to their heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Those are Peter's words to the, uh, to the mockers. Now, These are the words that he speaks to the crowd that is gathered after Jesus has given healing to the man by the temple gate. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One, and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. My sisters and my brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated.
Wow. Talk about words. Find, find your words. I don't think I could do that. God at work in some powerful ways, believe it or not. This morning I have just two big picture lessons for us from, from these texts. I know, I know, it's hard to believe. But remember, the deal has been you're reading these chapters, right? I get to choose the lessons and you read all the stuff in between and connect all the dots. So a couple, uh, couple of lessons for us this morning. Let's put, uh, let's put the first one up on the screen. Vic, can we have that next slide? I want you to talk a little bit about the idea of repentance. <laughs> Repent and be baptized. Peter said this twice, one to each crowd. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That was directed to the mockers. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. That's spoken to the, the crowd gathered around the healing there. So talk to your neighbor for just a minute or two. What does the word repent mean? When you hear that word, what's it mean? What comes to mind? And why is it important in witnessing to others? We're talking here about using our words. Why is it important to witnessing to others? Go ahead. See what your neighbor thinks. Okay, let's talk about it for a couple of minutes. Some feedback. What uh, what do you and your neighbor talk about? What do you think of when you hear that word repent? And uh, why is that important in witnessing? Repent. Change. Okay. Important to witnessing because there's a cost. Good. Good. Excellent. What else? Kind of ties into the idea of counting the costs. Rethinking and, you know, who am I and what needs to change. Okay. Good. Good. What else? Okay. Okay. Good. Good. Do you want to just finish the sermon, Matt? I mean, you're getting kind of fired up there, brother. (laughs) It's... It's, it's right on. It's, it's, it's the rejection of God. It's spitting in the face of the judge. Rejection of God. That, that is, that is the, the sin that, that we need to be concerned about for the sake of others, those of us who, who have repented and, and know Jesus. Sam is right. The, uh, the word translated repent is the idea of turning. It's used sometimes to turn from something, to turn to something. There are instances where it's, it's, it's used in the idea to, to, to return to, come back to where you were. Any way that it's used, it, it always has to do with making a choice for a change of direction. And when repentance is used throughout the New Testament in, in the context of salvation, it means a turning from and a turning to. And it's always, it's always rooted in what Christ has done on the cross. Twice Peter says, repent. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Well, baptism in much the same way as it is today was then a public proclamation of commitment. I'm laying myself down here and I'm following Jesus. It's being dead in sin and brought to life in new life in Christ. Repent for the forgiveness of sins was an admission of sin and need of a Savior. Peter's saying, this is what you got to do. Baptism was for all to see as a public, insta- as, as a public statement of, of commitment. To repent, to repent's not always easy. I'm not sure it's ever easy. The act of repentance 
is not popular because it, it implies that a person is doing something wrong or they are heading in a wrong direction. But here's the thing that I think is so important. The, the very notion of a savior suggests that someone or something needs saving. Would you agree? And, and, and so persons who live good lives don't need to be saved from their good lives. But persons who have rejected God and have lived a life that is self-centered versus God-centered, even those who live their lives spent in, in service to others, if God is not the center of that scenario and God is not the motivator for that heart, there is still, according to Scripture, a rejection of God. There is, there is not an acknowledgement of who He is. Scripture consistently teaches that people need to be saved because they are sinful, and they are sinful because by nature they have rejected God. And as such, they stand in the path of His wrath. They have spit in the face of the judge of the universe. And they are guilty. They need a Savior in that scenario. When we consider our mission as witnesses in this world, again, when we find our words, what are we witnessing to about Jesus? Are we witnessing that he is a, a wonderful person? Are we witnessing that he's a good teacher? Are we witnessing that, that he's a fine example of how life ought to be lived? All those things are true. Who's going to argue? But he came to earth to die on a cross. And the reason that that cross was necessary was because humanity had rejected God. And by the holy standards of God, there was condemnation, there was wrath that would follow. The death and sacrifice of Jesus has to be at the heart of why we witness, brothers and sisters. And, and when I say that, I don't mean that it's it's the first thing that we bring up. Hey, you're a sinner. You need a Savior. You ever accepted Jesus as your Savior? You're going to burn. Uh, you know, we, we've seen those tactics. And sometimes they've worked. That's probably not most of our style, I would guess. But when I say that, that the death and sacrifice of Jesus has to be the heart of our witness, I mean it is our motivation we are motivated to witness because we believe what the Scripture teaches and that those who don't know Jesus as Savior are not going to be saved. Does that make sense? We must remember that, that everyone needs a Savior. Everyone needs the sacrifice of Jesus applied to their guilt as they stand before God. And if people don't need a Savior, then what's the point? What is there to tell them? So lesson one is that repentance is essential for salvation. Repentance honors the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. Repentance means that a person recognizes their failure to embrace God 
in the center of their life and to exalt Him in all that they do and all that they say. And they have an understanding of that lack to be a sin for which they are separated from a life with God. And Jesus is the one who saves them from that. Now, I think repentance can be both an action in the present. Someone gets it and they go, oh my gosh, you're right. And they fall to their knees and they repent. They turn from a self-focused life to a God-centered life. That's, that's the action of repentance. But I also think that repentance can be an attitude that reflects gratitude for what God has done. There are persons who recognize their sin and they repent of it, but there are also people that are passionate followers of Jesus that don't remember a time in their lives when they repented. You know people like that. I know people who don't ever remember not loving Jesus and following Him and being committed to Him. Should they go back and repent? I don't know that that's necessary. Because I think that their lives can be filled and will be filled with a gratitude for what Christ has done for them. They know full well who they were before they made a commitment to surrender their lives to Jesus. And even if they don't remember making that commitment, they know who they were theologically before that ever happened, how it ever happened in their lives. In my thinking, they, they live with a repentant heart. And I think, I think the end result is the same. Jesus is their Savior, and they are confident of that. So lesson number one is that repentance is essential for salvation. And the cross always needs to be our motivation for witnessing. Lesson number two is this. When the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, we become part of something really big and really exciting and really mysterious. And that excitement in our lives needs to register more than it does on your faces right now. Because we become a part of the work of God bringing his kingdom into this world. Think about it. What happened at Pentecost was that the Spirit of God moved into the neighborhood like never before. And today, the Spirit of God lives in every house and community and business and school and organization where God's people are because the Spirit of God lives in God's people. I've told many of you that I don't remember much of anything from my theology courses in seminary. But I do remember the way that my theology professor closed every class session. He'd close his book. He'd say, okay, folks, that's it for the day. Now remember, grace is a mystery. That's how he ended every class. Grace is a mystery. Just when we think we've got it figured out, God surprises us again with the amazing nature of his grace. We're living in an age, according to Scripture, where God is at work in mysterious ways like never before. He's using his people to bring his presence face to face with those who do not know him. That's our role as witnesses. 
I'm not suggesting that, that we can expect a Pentecost on a daily basis. That was a, that was a one-time event that launched the church, but that event began an age in history where the Spirit of God is, is working in partnership with His redeemed people to redeem more. That needs to get some kind of a wow from us. Jeez. Maybe we do need another Pentecost. I need another Pentecost, that's for sure. That means that we ought to live each day, and do we do this, with a sense of expectancy for the exciting work that the Spirit of God is doing. I don't do that. I want to do that. I am... I am beginning to make this a part of my daily prayer. God, awaken me to what you're doing in life today and how you want to use me in in whatever way. We, We think of witnessing as a duty. It's not a duty. It's we get to. We get to live in ways that 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 demonstrate and speak of the amazing love and grace of God. It's not something that we have to do for God because He's desperate for helpers. No. We get to do it. We get to be a part of the work of God in our world. And it's something so much bigger and more important than anything else that we give ourselves to. Do we go through any of our days with a sense of wanting to be surprised by the Spirit of God in our lives? God, forgive me for the boring life I live. Wow. There is so much more when we are people who are willing to listen to the Spirit who lives in us. And yeah, I think it's normal to be a little scared. It's probably normal to be a lot scared sometimes, but we've got to remember, salvation is the work of the Spirit. We're not responsible for how people respond. We're responsible to love them. We're responsible to respond to the work of the Spirit as He opens doors and prompts us to speak. And don't forget, we've learned that the word witness is the same word as martyr. And so the Spirit empowers us to witness. The Spirit empowers us to die. Hopefully not in a real physical sense, but that does come to brothers and sisters all around the world. But until that comes, he gives us the ability to die to self because it's myself that gets in the way of this whole thing. I'm worried about what people are going to think of me. Worried about what people are going to think of of God if I don't have all the right answers. I'm worried that they're going to write me off. That I'm one of those kooks that they read about. And all of those things are things that the Spirit gives me the power to die to. Concern for self is an enormous tragedy when it outweighs our concern for the salvation of others who don't know Jesus. So, it doesn't require expertise doesn't require a degree of some sort, doesn't require extensive training or vast experience. What this requires is availability, awareness, a willingness in heart to be used as the Spirit sees fit. And it's not a one-size-fits-all. We're all individuals. We're all unique. 
We're all gifted by God with personalities given by him to be used in unique ways with people who are themselves unique. To be used by the Spirit, knowing that it is his work in us. We are just, we're just the vehicle. So let me ask you this morning, when's the last time you spoke the name of Jesus into a conversation with a person that you weren't sure knew him? I'll tell you, I don't know when that was for me. When was the last time you prayed for a person who did not know Christ? At least you're pretty sure they don't. And you offered in that same prayer to be part of God's answer to your own prayer for them. Brothers and sisters, this this is the bottom line of what we live for. None of us is going to arrive in heaven someday and hear those words, well done, for anything other than this. How well are we making Jesus known to those who don't know him? Actions and words. Praise team, why don't you come on up this morning and prepare to, to close us. I want to read part of a story for you from a book that our Connect group is reading. Many of you have this book because we've read it together as a congregation in the past. Oh my goodness, you talk about an adventure. God has only created one Lee Strobel, that's for sure. And we don't have to be Lee Strobel. But I just want to read you this, uh, just portion of this story. He talks about being in India. He's in this, uh, this province that's just out in the middle of nowhere and it's hot and people were busy in their fields and he was part of this evangelism mission and, and, and there were just a, a half a dozen of the Indian people who were playing music to attract a crowd and uh, he says, thankfully, nobody captured this on video and YouTube didn't exist yet. Because soon some onlookers began to gather and there were 15 minutes later there were 25 people sitting on the grass and, and he was, quite frankly, amazed at that. The musicians played song after song, looking nervously around for the pastor. There was supposed to be an American pastor coming to give the message. So finally, one of the musicians bent down to me and said, one more song, and then you give the sermon. <laughs> Lee Strobel stares at him. He's thinking, me? I nearly shouted in panic. I was a journalist, not a preacher. So anyway, the music stops. There was absolute silence. 25 pairs of quizzical eyes bored in on me. My palms began to sweat. My knees were shaking. My heart was palpitating, fighting back waves of nausea. I slowly rose to my feet, my mind churning wildly to come up with something to say as the interpreter took his position, ready to translate my words into their language. So I began offering a weak smile. Hindus, are you? (laughs) The interpreter shoots back at him this glance that says, is that really how you want to start? I was tempted to tell him, just deal with it. I didn't ask to be up here. But when I didn't say anything, he dutifully translated my words. There was no discernible reaction from the small gathering. And I can't recall the details of what I said next. I think I talked about Jesus. I'm pretty sure I told them why I loved him and how he had forgiven me of all my wrongdoing, past, present, and future. When it came time to share the gospel, my mind was a jumble. I tried to remember Bible verses and give coherent explanation for Jesus' death on the cross I simply simply rambled on in disjointed sentences. I felt like an utter failure. 
I had an overwhelming and oppressive sense that I had made a complete mess of things. At the end, I said something like this, I know it would be a great sacrifice for you to receive Jesus. I know this can be dangerous around here, so don't even consider it if you're not ready. Believe me, I'll understand. But we're going to play one more song while I pray, and then you have a chance to think about it. And if you want to put your trust in Christ, I'll help you do that. So he says, I folded my hands, I shut my eyes, and I began to pray a prayer of repentance. Oh, Father, I am so sorry. I know I'm not Billy Graham. I know I'm not qualified to give sermon. I don't deserve to be doing something this important. I'm sure I botched it. Please forgive me for thinking that a sinner, a nobody, a former atheist like me could represent you to these precious people. They deserve so much better. If you just let me get out of here safely, I promise you I'll (laughs) never do this again. Please, please, Lord, forgive me. With that, I opened my eyes. I looked up and I gasped. Twelve men and women had stood to their feet and stepped forward to receive Christ, tears flowing down their cheeks. It was like an electric shock jolted my body, and I knew at that moment that I would never be the same. Brothers and sisters, may the Spirit aliven us to the adventure we have been called to. May we never be the same. Amen.